I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Derek Tan. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you are the brand new uh, manager of exhibitions at the Beattie Biodiversity Museum, but you're also a biologist, right? Yes. I was, yeah, I did a biology degree here at UBC. Excellent. Um, let's start with that. Uh, what kind of biology did you specialize in? It was a general degree, which has turned out to be fairly useful, dealing with like a broad range of topics right now. But I studied mostly plant biology, and including aspects of ethnobotany, which was very interesting. What's ethnobotany? Ethnobotany is people's use of plants and how plants relate to human culture. So it was a lot of looking at indigenous use of plants, as well as how plants have a greater meaning to people beyond just, you know, the ecosystem services arguments or food, but also how plants relate to culture. So what I was interested in was how plants relate to art and symbolism. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It was a a fun course to do. Are there a lot of ethnobotanists around? Ooh, (laughs) that's a good question. I don't, uh, I don't keep in touch right now, but uh, we've hosted Wade Davis, who's sort of a well-known ethnobotanist, National Geographic Explorer, UBC professor. Great. And um, what does the manager of exhibitions do? The manager of exhibitions at the Beattie Museum uh, is the person who looks out for all the stuff that's on display at the museum. So that includes a lot of permanent exhibits that feature stories from our collection and stories from researchers, as well as temporary exhibitions where we work with artists who interact with our collections and come up with artistic expressions of science. And we also have virtual and online exhibitions as well. Oh, it seems like your ethnobotany is really uh, coming in handy. (laughs) There's a lot of threads that come up. So it's, yeah, it's useful to have a nice general background to to draw from. You've also got a non-scientific background too, right? I do, yeah. I studied art history here as another major, and I did a lot of the visual arts studios at UBC as well. Wow. Well, it shows through with all the wonderful graphic design that you do. The uh, very intricate uh, designs are just stunning. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a real pleasure, really, to be able to be someone who can bring a lot of artistic expression to a more science focused job. And how did you end up getting into um, exhibit management and graphic design at the BD? Ooh, that's a long story. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, the first job I got after I graduated was in one of the zoology labs here at the university. And in that job, I was helping with the research, but I was also doing some illustration and some web design as part of it. Uh, We were working with a large group of terrestrial microarthropods, which are, it's like a mixed bag of a lot of different types of mostly insects. So there wasn't, you know, you can't go to a single field guide. 
for that type of stuff because it's hugely taxonomically diverse. So we were basically developing our own identification materials to be able to tell what we were getting in our samples. So that was the, my primary focus as a recent graduate was basically making like a visual guide to everything that we found. Wow. Um, and then how did you end up at the BD? Right. Sorry. Yeah. So from that job, um, I ended up meeting a lot of faculty who are involved in ecology research at UBC. Uh, and that connected me with a lot of people who would end up being faculty connected to the museum. This is before the museum existed. That was also about the time that people were having initial discussions about what the museum was going to look like, um, both physically as well as more organizationally and as a as a as a natural history entity in Vancouver. So I was initially I was a research associate in the department, but uh, I was also in a lot of the early planning and brainstorming meetings for the museum, and I brought a lot of that visual art background and contributed a lot of visual ideas. So I ended up designing a lot of visual identity and some of the early promotional material for the museum back in around 2005. So this is about five years before the museum opened. So that was my initial contact with what would become the Beanie Biodiversity Museum. Uh, from there, I went to the Museum of Anthropology and I worked there for two years on their digitization program. And then I came back to the BD Museum as full-time staff uh, about two years before the museum opened. And I was doing a lot of web projects and also visual identity promotion around that time. Wow. Well, I mean, it, it pays off. The museum is beautiful. Um, I always say that it's my second favorite museum in Vancouver. Uh, after the PME? After the PME, of, of course. course. <laughs> uh, in your studies, in your bio biological uh, program, uh, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Or have you, um, as an exhibits manager, have you um, had any projects that you're supremely proud of? Yeah, and the exhibits that we've done at the BD, uh, we've had some really good collaborations with uh, other organizations and groups of people. Recently, we've been working with Musqueam, uh, and we've put together a primarily online exhibit around their knowledge around sturgeon hunting in the Fraser River. Yeah, so the, the website we put together is called the Sturgeon Harpoon Knowledge Web, and it creates a digital immersive space where we talk about the different ecological and social connections that are involved with hunting sturgeon, which hasn't happened for a hundred years because of the, the depletion in the sturgeon stocks. So it's, it's something that doesn't happen, but this gives Musqueam a way to talk about it and to teach it to other people. That's really cool. That's a great way to pass on knowledge when uh, the natural populations uh, don't really support uh, the ongoing practice. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of sad that we don't have that practice happening anymore, but mm -hmm. it's it's nice that the museum can be a repository for different types of information. So we're we're a library of scientific information, but it's nice that we can hold some of the indigenous knowledge and that they've trusted us to do that. And that project won a Governor General's Award, right? It did, yeah, in 2019. So that's, yeah, that's something I'm very proud of. <laughs> Absolutely. And you should be. <laughs> Thanks. What are you working on right now? We always work on our temporary exhibitions. So I'm planning temporary exhibitions for next summer. And uh, one thing I want to do is look at our permanent exhibitions again and go through them and really highlight some of those current research stories because we have so many 
incredible researchers in the Biodiversity Research Center who are always working on new discoveries. And so that's something I want to bring to the forefront. Excellent. Um, can you give us a sneak peek as to what's coming up? Yeah, we just released a new video featuring Amelia Hesketh. So she is a PhD student with Chris Harley's lab, and she was doing intertidal research during the 2021 heat dome. Oh. Yeah, so she had some shading experiments going on over mussel beds during what happened to be like a historic heat wave in Vancouver. So she talked to us on camera uh, about her research and about what she discovered in terms of uh, survival of invertebrates in the intertidal zone during extreme heat events. And that that's something that just got released through our YouTube channel. And it's something that we hope to highlight in the museum space as well. That's really cool. And I love your approach to exhibitions. It's not just... Um not just biologically focused, but it's socially focused. Uh, you tell the stories, the people behind uh, the science. Uh, and then you take that approach also to the media that you use to make your exhibitions. It's not just putting stuff in boxes. Uh, you also do a lot of these really cool uh, virtual uh, sessions and um, multimedia uh, displays. It's uh, very inter interdisciplinary and um, in many respects and the wave of the future. I hope so. Yeah, I think people really engage with people. <laughs> so it's hard to, it's, sometimes it's hard to get people to engage with a research story or with an object. Mm -hmm. But if you can put a, a personal angle or someone they can empathize with, um, I think people are more willing to listen and to feel something about the story. Absolutely. Now, in your biological uh, life uh, as a biologist, did you do much field work? Actually, fieldwork has been something that I've been able to still do a bit of as uh, someone who works with a museum, which is great. So in 2012, the herbarium went out on a field expedition to collect samples from uh, a part of BC that just had been undercollected recently. So I was able to go on an, a pretty short trip, but we were still out there camping and we went out into the forests with some people who really knew the place really well. And we were able to collect some species that they weren't incredibly rare, but they were something that added to our collection in terms of filling in sort of a, a gap in knowledge where we knew that these plants existed in this space uh, historically, but we weren't sure if those distributions were the same as where they had been in the past. So it was a really good opportunity to get involved on the research side and to, to sort of become part of the collections as well, which, which are very timeless in a way. So that was sort of a nice way of seeing both sides of what it means to work in a museum. It's always good when people understand what's going on in various departments like that. Um, it creates a more uh, holistic experience and makes the museum run more efficiently. Um, when I look over at the BD, I see uh, a big family, really. Uh, everyone seems to get along. There don't really seem to be huge um, uh, barriers between the departments. Um, yeah, it looks like a great place and a great group dynamic. Yeah, thanks. And of course, you know, you're very much part of that family, Daniel. <laughs> and yeah, I think you're right. It's it's a good spot where we are in terms of the size of the museum, where we're still able to have a lot of the the functionality that comes with being in a, a large research institution, but we're still small enough where, yeah, everybody knows each other and everyone interacts in the hallway. And yeah, we, we don't have the problem where, you know, one department has no idea what another department is doing. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the benefits of a big museum and the benefits of a small museum. Yeah, that's true. Best of both worlds. 
has anything ever gone wrong in the field? I do love field stories. They, um, I've never actually done field work myself, uh, but it sounds like it's this place where, um, things go wrong all the time and it's very frustrating for you and very entertaining for me. Um, so You've been saying this every podcast, Daniel. I feel like you should go into the field <laughs> and there must be lots of people who would love to have you. <laughs> we need to fix this. Um, yeah, stuff always goes wrong in the field. Uh, on that trip, nothing major went wrong, but we did spend a significant amount of time getting to a mountaintop that had very unique soil and very unique plants. And when we got there, it was pouring rain. <laughs> and <laughs> we could have gone out, but we would have all gotten soaked and probably had a miserable night. But we decided to, yeah, to turn back. So it wasn't it wasn't dramatic. <laughs> it wasn't a huge issue. But yeah, sometimes you just have those small disappointments where when you're out in the field, you realize things are beyond your control, which is it's a good thing to be reminded of sometimes because, you know, we work in a, a big world where we're not in charge. And sometimes we forget about that when we sit in our office. <laughs> It's always good to have a, a team leader, though, who recognizes that sometimes the comfort of the team is uh, is also important and you don't have to push through and get soaked uh, just for the sake of gathering that material uh, right this instant. You can wait until the morning. Yeah, that's always true. And I think uh, I was very glad that I wasn't that person who had to make that decision. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm curious, um, why is your work important? Why? Um, have an, a manager of exhibitions and not just let the curators put whatever they want on display. Our curators are wonderful and they have, <laughs> they have fantastic ideas. And I think it would not be a bad museum if we did that. But um, I think it's also, it's also nice to have someone who looks at the exhibitions cohesively and to, and someone who looks at what kind of experience the visitors are having. So I've been really lucky in that I get to talk to a lot of our incoming volunteers. And one of the questions we ask them is, why do you want to volunteer with the Beatty Museum? And it's always gratifying when we find young people who tell us that they spend a lot of time coming to the Beatty Museum when they were students, uh, maybe on a field trip, maybe with their families. And their experience of the museum led them to come to UBC to study science and to volunteer for the museum. So you see sort of that through line and how the museum makes a difference in people's lives in terms of what their interests are and what they really care about and what they want to give their time to. So I think when you can have that impact on people, uh, it's it's something that's definitely worthwhile. You do certainly take a very uh, user experience approach to, to your designs. And um, again, like you said, your curators are wonderful people. They're very passionate. Uh, but I always caution people about presenting their passions because uh, what they're passionate about um, might not translate to the, the general public. <laughs> That's true. But we always get the people who are just as passionate as the curators. And it's wonderful when you find those people and you can connect them with the staff who are into the same thing. Like that's always magic is when you can find those people out there who have that level of passion and that level of drive. And you can sort of uh, facilitate a relationship that can contribute to the scientific research and sort of a deeper knowledge of science. Absolutely. You can almost see the sparks flying. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's great when you when you see that. <laughs> Speaking of passion, uh, what makes you passionate about your job? What's the best part about your work? 
I think the best part of my job is being able to express what I really love in terms of the natural world and nature and in terms of like visual culture. So being able to bring together the artistic expressions that go into science and also people's stories around um, their expression of science and their experience of it. Uh, I think I was always someone who really enjoyed museums as well. And if I can give sort of a good museum experience to other people, that makes it really rewarding. Excellent. Well, that comes through in your work. Um, yeah, that passion and, and that drive. Now, of course, not everything is sunshine and roses. Um, what is the worst or the most challenging part of your work? I think I'm someone who is very results oriented sometimes or like, you know, I like working towards a goal and having a way to get there, which is not always the way that everyone else works. So I think sometimes a lot of like the communication that goes into that, whether it's by email or in person. Um, yeah, that can be challenging, but I think it's necessary. And I think there can be some some good results that come out of that kind of exchange. But yeah, sometimes that that back and forth isn't always my favorite thing in the world. One of the benefits of being a university museum is that you get all of the, uh, the heft and the intellectual might of the university at your disposal. But it does come uh, as a double-sided sword. Like you said, um, Academics are great, but sometimes they do get very vague and um, or, or get lost in the, the details. Uh, that is something I, I've noticed as well. And you have to bring them uh, back to earth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the academic side of things, but I think also when you're working with uh, companies who aren't involved in academics sometimes sometimes i'm the one who's bringing that rigor <laughs> right <laughs> uh, on behalf of like the university because you know you you hold the science and people trust you with it and you want to get it right so yeah sometimes it's passing on that level of um yeah making sure that people have that level of accuracy in their work is something that i feel responsible for sometimes <laughs> You were instrumental in our brand new exhibition, the uh, Walk Through Time uh, display. And uh, I saw the back and forth on that, uh, trying to get everything accurate and um, within a reasonable-ish time period um, and a, a reasonable cost. And um, yeah, you, you were essential <laughs> in getting that project to completion. Yeah, that was a, a great thing to see show up in real life because, <laughs> yeah, like you said, it had a long period of planning and things are always in your head and they're always changing. So it's always very different when a when an exhibit goes into the ground. And that was it was a great chance to work more closely with you and with the Pacific Museum of Earth, um, as well as collaborate with a, a bunch of different faculty. And I think the, the end result is something that's going to be very valuable for both museums uh, in terms of bringing us closer, as well as instructing the people who encounter it on campus. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a fabulous exhibit. And I've seen so many people um, engaging with it uh, just on a daily basis. I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, has that impacted your studies or your work? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm gay. I'm Asian, <laughs> Asian Canadian, I guess. Um, 
yeah, it's hard to say how that's impacted uh, my work. I guess when I started doing this job, a lot of the stuff that I was doing was more technical and behind the scenes. So I think, yeah, I think I had a less of a public um, aspect to the job and being someone who's very technical and Asian is not surprising. <laughs> so I, yeah, I don't think that was, I don't think that was rocking any boats. <laughs> um, but yeah, now it's interesting because I'm meeting a lot more people and I'm representing the museum um, as well as sort of our public functions a lot more. So it's something that, you know, I've been grateful for the opportunity um, from the museum, the university <laughs> to have this role. And yeah, I think that I've felt nothing but support from the institution. And so I'm very glad to be in this position and aware of the, the responsibility that comes with it and the possibilities that I have for representation. Excellent. Uh, I certainly know that everyone over at the BD speaks um, glowingly about you, uh, as well as on this side of Main Mall. Um, I've never heard a bad thing. <laughs> Thanks. I'll try to try to be more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like uh, biology or museums in general are uh, open and welcoming fields or are they more closed off and insular or a bit of both? Because, of course, they aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's true. I've never really worked um, extensively on the research side, especially at maybe higher levels of academia. So I haven't seen a lot of it. And I think, I think, well, I hope that's something that's changing as well. Uh, I know when I've been to a lot of museum conferences recently, they've been more focused on equity and diversity and inclusion. I was lucky enough to be selected as a scholar for the Museum Computer Network Conference in 2019. And they had a focus on really promoting people who were uh, underrepresented in the museum industry. So that was a fantastic opportunity to to be able to go somewhere and present my work uh, and meet a lot of other people who are, yeah, who are sort of changing the face of museums. Excellent. What does it mean to be a scholar at one of those conferences? The scholars at the conference were a group of younger professionals. So it was sort of people who were emerging in the field. And once you had projects that were changing sort of the way that museums did things in the past. So that was an opportunity I had to present uh, the Sturgeon Web, which is our collaboration with Musqueam, uh, and other people had similar sort of disruptive exhibitions and initiatives that were within the museum industry. Now, one thing that we've all had to deal with, um, regardless of where we fall on, on the diversity rainbow, uh, is COVID. Uh, the pandemic uh, closed the museum for a few weeks or months. Um, how did the pandemic affect your work, if at all? Yeah, I think we were closed for a few months. I was really fortunate in that a lot of my work was able to move online and move remote. So I went home, I took my computer home. <laughs> I was working off my dining table for a few months. Um, yeah, and what it did for us is it allowed us to pivot to a lot of online programming and everyone was very willing to, to sort of step outside the box on that. So. I presented a few online sessions, which I usually don't do public programming, <laughs> but that was a good opportunity. I did like a drawing studio from home, which was nice. I presented uh, some of our museum projects at virtual conferences. 
So we were able to move online fairly quickly, and that was due to a lot of the existing infrastructure that already existed at UBC, um, as well as the museum's investment in terms of equipment. So I think we were in a position that was quite privileged uh, in being able to do that. And I know uh, like a lot of other museums would have been hit harder if that infrastructure didn't exist and if also if their funding model was more highly dependent on say gate revenue so yeah we were we were sort of lucky in a lot of ways yeah the virtual programming at the bd uh, really influenced and helped us here at the pme uh, we were spinning our wheels until we attended a training session with some of your educational staff and um that really kicked us into high gear uh so thank you for that and um Certainly your experience with the Sturgeon Project uh, was almost uh, prophetic in the sense that it was exactly where museums needed to go in the future because physical spaces were unsafe and the virtual realm was the only one that uh, people could access. So uh, you were ahead of the curve (laughs) by a mile. Right. Yeah. I think online exhibits are something that we've been exploring for a while. But in, in that particular case, I think the the digital landscape was the most appropriate vehicle for the content that we had. And I think if if that's your approach to sort of finding what's the best way to deliver this content, then then you're in a good spot in terms of you're not trying to shoehorn like a an offline program into an online format if it doesn't belong there, if it doesn't fit. So yeah, I think it it was a good it was a good position to be in, in a lot of ways, but I think it was really sort of the content that brought us there. So it's sort of cart horse <laughs> situation <laughs> and it worked out, but yeah, but I think it was, yeah, it was the shape of the project that really sort of led the the decision to bring it online. Now I'm going to ask a question that I know many of my students are going to be uh, listening for. Uh, if someone's listening to this and they want to follow in your footsteps and become an exhibits manager in a museum, what advice would you have for them? What courses or experience or background would you recommend they pursue uh, to become the next Derek? <laughs> I think there's a lot of different paths that people can take to museums. I think museums are places that welcome a lot of diversity in terms of educational backgrounds. So for me, I I didn't have this job in mind when I was doing my education. It didn't exist, for one. Um, so when I was in school, I was focusing on things that I really loved. And I think if your focus is to study on things that you're really passionate about, I don't think you can go wrong because then you'll end up in a job that you're passionate about. So I don't think it's the best thing to to always have a specific job in mind when you're doing your education or when you're planning what you what you want to focus your time on. Um, because what if you don't get it? Exactly. <laughs> then where are you? So yeah, so I think study broadly, um, be really open to new experiences and you know things outside your faculty, things outside your comfort zone, because you never know when it's going to come in handy. <laughs> and you know you may think a course is completely irrelevant, and then it ends up being the most important one that you've taken in your university career. So I think it's I think it's the the after school special message. You know, be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I took one geology course in university, um, and now I work here. <laughs> so. I, I completely agree. You never know where you're going to end up. Uh, life is unpredictable. 
Yeah, I agree. And also be open to continuing to learn um, even after you're in a job. Um, yeah, it was something that happened a lot in my job because I'm not trained on the more technical aspects of what I was doing previously, which was a lot of like design work and a lot of technical work. So I took continuing education courses, um, you know, through UBC, through Emily Carr, wherever I could find them. Um, yeah, there was a lot of like on the job learning, which happens. And I think we're lucky enough to be in a place that supports that kind of professional development. But yeah, I think initially start with what interests you start with where you find yourself going naturally. And yeah, you'll end up somewhere which hopefully suits you pretty well. Looking back at your own academic career, uh, what would you say was the most important course that you took? Which course turned little Derek into the Derek of today? I think I was focused a lot on the ecology courses uh, when I was starting my undergraduate career. And that was somewhere where I was definitely interested by the materials. But what happened from that course was there's an ecology field course, which UBC offers, and it's different every year because a different faculty member takes it. So from the regular undergraduate ecology course, uh, one of the professors here, Diane Srivastava, came in and she was running the field course the next year. And she was running it in the rainforest in Costa Rica. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the course which really changed things for me because that was two weeks in a field station with barely any electricity, no running water, <laughs> um, being yeah immersed in field techniques and ecology. So, you know, running transects through the rainforest where you, you can't walk a straight line. <laughs> um, yeah, counting every plant within a certain area, identifying birds and butterflies. Uh, it, was, it was a really transformative experience. And I think that really solidified both my love of like ecology and being in those types of spaces, as well as a desire to, to educate people about them and to protect them. That sounds beautiful, but also exhausting. Counting the biodiversity of Costa Rica um, is a gargantuan task. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, and <laughs> yeah, it's something where I think that's where science really likes to break things down into small packages. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at these very tiny areas, like a few square meters, but we were hoping to extrapolate those lessons into something that which explains the patterns of growth that we see in a rainforest. And so it's sort of that, that step back from the very hyper-focused research into the more broader picture is something that I think was really valuable and something that I still hope to retain and to share with people is to look at sort of like, okay, we have this, this research that's going on, but how do we, how do we step back and what does it mean for more people and for a more global perspective? Wonderful. That's perfectly summed up. Derek, you are always a very inspiring person. Your art is jaw-dropping. Um, but I'm curious, who inspired you as you were studying? Uh, no degree is ever achieved by the, the student. It takes a village to raise an undergrad, a master's student, a PhD. Who was your village? Yeah, when you do an undergraduate degree, you're sort of bringing a lot of people with you the classroom even when you don't realize it <laughs> so i think i think to a large extent i had people from my family sort of coming along uh, my dad was a graduate of ubc so his photo was in the next building over in engineering for years i actually don't know if it's still there <laughs> um 
Yeah, and all my like aunts and uncles came here, so it was sort of in in the family history. <laughs> One of the family traditions was going to UBC, um, and my parents both worked in applied sciences, so I think I had sort of that science mindset as a child. Um, and there's also people who like you you see on tv and you you kind of want to be them so i was one of those kids who grew up watching every nature documentary i could get from the library and the nature of things every time it came on so you know david suzuki was a big name <laughs> around ubc <laughs> so he was definitely someone who's um yeah in my head and i've been lucky enough to run into him a few times here and i think that's not i think that's not unusual for people who are around my age i've been to some talks where He's attended and one time he asked a question from the back of the room and every head spun around as soon as he opened his mouth. Like his voice is something that's very iconic in terms of science and Canada. Great role models. Uh, do you have students? I guess you've got work loans. Yeah, I work loan students right now. I'm also a guest instruct uh, in some courses. So I'm a guest instructor in a graduate level course in visual communication of scientific data. So <laughs> I teach students very basic uh, vector illustration skills. So it's something that can hopefully serve them well pretty far into their careers if, it, if they want to keep going into science communication. Uh, I'm also going to be teaching for the first time an undergraduate science communication course. So I'm hoping to bring them into the museum and have them apply their their analysis of scientific research into a way which is hopefully more visual and more publicly engaging, maybe for a younger audience than they've thought about. So it's, an, it's a nice way of reframing people's thinking of how they communicate science into sort of a more broad or possibly more artistic method than they've previously considered. So yeah, and in my teaching, I'm hopefully bringing a set of skills that people might not have thought of when they when they think about science uh into into their practice wow that really is the wave of the future um science communication is is really big right now and um you're on the the vanguard <laughs> uh when you're looking for students and for interns to help you uh what do you look for in a candidate with a lot of our students i think we've had a lot of success with students who are interdisciplinary because they have that that broad mindset. And I think with that comes a broader skill set. So we've had uh, students who have done double majors in math and art history, or a lot of computer science students come through our office. Uh, a lot of biology students, actually, which are fantastic if they have sort of the more computer-based skills as well. So I will work with anyone. Basically, <laughs> um, if you have sort of the interest in in communicating science and there's some aspect of the natural world which really fires you up, um, you know, I'm happy to have you in the office. And I'm always willing to teach some of the more technical skills. I've had students come in and, you know, everything that they've worked with has been free online software, which is fantastic because a lot of the professional software is really expensive. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> as you well know. So uh, even if they just have that that sort of frame of mind. You know, they know where they want to go. Um, I can give them different tools for how to get there. And those have been some of the best students that I've had. In a sense, using the free online software shows that the person is a problem solver. Uh, they can work around the limitations of a budget um, and still get the job done, which is 
almost more impressive than using the fancy, uh, expensive software. Right. Yeah. It sort of rewards creativity. So during job interviews, often what I'll do is I'll give people uh, like an end product, like here's a poster and I'll give people all the assets they need to create it and I'll let them make it any way they want. Mm -hmm. Use any software. <laughs> um, I'll watch over your shoulder as you do it and I'll ask you questions. But yeah, I've seen people do some amazing things and like teach me new things even in that process. So I'm, I'm very open to that kind of creativity and yeah, problem solving. Excellent. Now, you're a long way from being one of those students, those fresh-faced <laughs> students. Uh, you're at about halfway through your career, I'm guessing. Um, I want you to look toward the end of your career. What would you like to have as your professional legacy when you retire? Or what would you like to have written on your career's tombstone? One of the things that I really like about this position is being able to amplify other people's voices. So whether that's a student who's working with me who maybe hasn't that, had that much professional experience, um, you know, giving them the opportunity to put something out there which has a lot of eyes on it, gets a lot of praise, hopefully, um, or championing stories, you know, research stories, stories about Indigenous knowledge, which may not have that much light shone on them. So I think in terms of something that would be more of a legacy would be bringing forward, you know, those people or those projects which might not otherwise have been seen. So that's kind of a sneaky way of saying, don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> or like, look at this other thing. <laughs> no, I yeah. think that's a very mature answer. Um, you want your legacy to be other people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to say I'm immune to <laughs> getting some of the spotlight myself, but I think, yeah, the best way to use it is to to be a bit of a, like a mirror, if we can extend the metaphor and to like shine the spotlight on someone else to like use any prominence or experience that I have and be able to pass that on. That's an answer that really uh, betrays your scientific background. A lot of our scientists say um, that they recognize that their contributions are to the field. Uh, and it's not about uh, they themselves, it's about uh, the community. And uh, you see yourself as a community builder, which is excellent. I think so. Yeah, I think that's something that was always like an unpredictable element around the museum. It's like, who's going to show up? <laughs> <laughs> what community are we going to build? And I think we, we have a community now, which is really rewarding. And it was something that was really difficult during COVID in particular. Um, like we had a fantastic volunteer pool and some of that dropped away when we weren't able to give people that volunteer experience in person. But it's been great to see some of our volunteers come back from when they were volunteering with us before and to see that community still endures through time. For my final question, um, it's similar. Uh, the world is changing at an ever increasing pace, uh, not just the physical world through climate change, but also uh, how we understand the world uh, um, and how we process it. Uh, where do you see uh, museum exhibitions going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people who are looking to get into this field and um, anticipate some of those changes? I think museums are in a, a kind of a unique place because people, people often come to museums to see things about the past. The deep past, in, in the case of the Pacific Museum of Earth, uh, maybe the more recent past at the VD Biodiversity Museum. 
But I think you're right. I think people don't necessarily want to see things in exactly the same way that they've always seen them. So, yeah, so I think especially for people coming into the museum industry, it's important not to ignore what's happened in the past, both in terms of, say, recognizing some practices which we wouldn't do anymore, but also in terms of the good things that we've done in the past. You know, if we didn't have a lot of the historical biodiversity collections that we do, we wouldn't know how biodiversity has changed now. So recognizing that, you know, there's value in the things that have happened previous to us and that we build upon the knowledge that was assembled. It's funny, as you said that, I got a flash of the, the PME's main gallery, uh, things that we wouldn't do today. We have our dinosaur, which is painted and bolted to the wall and assembled incorrectly. <laughs> Whereas just beside it, we have the jelly roll, uh, which was preserved before it was destroyed uh, through natural forces. And uh, the only reason we still have it is because it is in a museum. So, um, yeah, I think you perfectly encapsulated uh, where museums are going and um, reflected us in your answer. Thank you. Yeah, and I think we shouldn't lose touch of the the power that museums have in terms of presenting a real object uh, in front of people who might not otherwise be able to see the types of things that we hold. So I think that's something fundamental to museums that's not going to change with technology. It's not going to change with time. So it's important to keep to keep sort of that touchstone as we move forward. Or in our case, literally touching a stone. <laughs> I was relying on you in the puns, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make it easy. <laughs> Derek, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? I think something that museums like ours can do is encourage people to look more closely at the natural world. Uh, at the at the geological world that they see around them and at the biological world. So I always like to encourage people to, you know, to get outside, to enjoy the natural spaces that they have around them and, you know, appreciate the world that we live in. Excellent. Wise words. Well, Derek, thank you for your time. Thank you for the, all the beauty you've brought into the world. Thank you for your wisdom and good luck in this new position. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. You know, it's always lovely working with you and I look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beattie designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth.